If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. There is a sense of the 1930s revisited at the moment uh, of uh, nationalistic forces, extreme forces, starting to move into the centre of politics in a way that they haven't um, since the end of the Second World War. That was Robert Harris discussing his new historical novel, which explores the events of the 1938 Munich Conference. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Robert Harris one of Britain's most acclaimed historical novelists, whose books include Fatherland, Enigma, Pompeii and Archangel. His latest book, entitled Munich, chronicles the events of the 1938 conference in Germany, where European leaders sought to find an agreement that might avert the seemingly impending war. Our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, spoke to Robert about his new novel and the parallels there may be with events of today. For our listeners who might not know, um, what was the Munich Agreement of 1938 and what was its significance? Well, the Munich Agreement was the uh, culmination of um, two weeks of hectic diplomacy by Neville Chamberlain um, trying to avert uh, a a war in Europe. Um, uh, He he flew to see Hitler twice before Munich uh, and then finally um, in uh, the... uh, 28th of September, uh, Hitler accepted a proposal by uh, Mussolini uh, that uh, the four big powers in Europe, Britain, France, uh, Germany and Italy, should get together to uh, settle 
the Germany's territorial claims on Czechoslovakia. Um, and it was significant because um, without the Munich Agreement, there almost certainly the Second World War would have started in 1938. Um, instead, it was postponed for a year. Um, and in my view, uh, it was a necessary postponement as it gave us the time for rearmament. And it also um, meant that when the war did come, there was a feeling of national unity and indeed imperial unity uh, that Germany had to be fought. And this is the backdrop to your new novel. So I wanted to ask, why are you so fascinated by this period of time? And what sort of compelled you to write a book about it? I'm fascinated by the drama of the events. It was really the first emergency summit meeting of uh, world leaders that had ever taken place. It was uh, in the heart of Munich, in the heart of the Third Reich. It involved immense moral compromises and uh, searching of conscience, uh, realpolitik, and that the ramifications of it were to go on for years. And they're still with us today, actually, the way the words Munich and appeasement are banded around. And it's not really been that well explored uh, in popular fiction. Neville Chamberlain, who's a character in my novel, has never appeared in fiction, as far as I know, in the same way that I've done him. I definitely wanted to bring up Chamberlain because he's such a key character. And he's also been given quite a bad rap um, by people throughout history. So what I wanted to ask was, why do you think Chamberlain has been so heavily criticised by people? And why do you disagree with this viewpoint? Well, there's a reason an obvious and fair reason why he's criticised. Um, he pursued a policy of appeasement um, and the policy failed. Uh, there was a war. Appeasement didn't work. And he himself said that everything I've stood for in my public life has come crashing down in ruins. So he would have been the first to accept uh, that the whole basis of his policy had failed. Having said that, Munich bought us time... And uh, Chamberlain himself, just before he died, said that if I'm to be blamed for all the weaknesses of the country, am I not to be applauded for some of its strengths? And in particular, there were two strengths. One was air defence, which enabled Britain to continue fighting. That is a combination of spitfires and radar, which were provided by Neville Chamberlain and his government. Uh, and the second thing was a, the sense of national unity, which Churchill was able to so eloquently expressed, had only been purchased really by the constant efforts for peace that Neville Chamberlain had made in the 1930s, um, so that the British people, I think, really were united. They, they recognised that the Nazi Germany was not uh, an entity with which you could ever negotiate a peace because you could never trust them. So I think he, he comes badly out of history Partly also because he died. Uh, you know, he, he gave up the premiership to Churchill in May 1940. He was diagnosed with cancer in July. And by November, he was dead. He was not around to defend himself. You sort of touch on this in your book. At the time, um, when he arrived back after the Munich Agreement, and he arrived back in England, he was seen quite positively by, by the general public then. So... At what point did opinion towards him sort of begin to change, do you think? Well, you're quite right that I would think in September 1938, 
Chamberlain was probably the most popular prime minister we'd ever had. He was greeted by thousands of people and the sense of national relief that there wouldn't be a war less than 20 years, remember, after the end of the First World War, was very profound. And it was only, I think, in the months that followed as it, as it became clear that actually Munich had bought us time but it hadn't actually solved the problem, that there was a gradual slipping away of popularity. But even when he fell from office um, in 1940, he was still quite popular in the country and he remained leader of the Conservative Party and he remained, in effect, Churchill's deputy, running the home front while Churchill ran the war. And it wasn't until the summer of 1940 there was a particularly vicious attack on him in a pamphlet called Guilty Men. It was only around that time that the press attacks on him really began to gather pace. And since that point, Chamberlain really has been in the historical doghouse. Do you think that a little bit of it is, obviously we can look back on this with hindsight and say, well, he didn't manage to stop the war because we know that it happened a few years later. Do you think there's an element of that today? Definitely. We know things about Adolf Hitler now that nobody knew in September 1938. And one of the things I try to do in the novel is to just look at the the, the, the pieces on the chessboard, if you like, as, the, as they would have appeared to a rational observer in 1938. There were harsh and repressive laws against uh, Jews in Germany. That is certainly true. The Nuremberg laws forbidding intermarriage and barring Jews from office, public state office. But the actual murderous aspects of uh, anti-Semitism hadn't really started. They were to arrive after the Munich Agreement, particularly with Kristallnacht in about six weeks after the Munich Agreement had been signed. And of course, we look back at Chamberlain, we have to peer at him around the things that we know in the Second World War. You know, we can only see him, you know, over the pile of corpses at Auschwitz, if you want to look at it in that way. And so he appears all the worse. But I don't think anybody really, or virtually no one, could have foreseen that in 1938. And Chamberlain had to deal with what was in front of him. We were not well armed. We were not well protected. The country had only 20 years earlier come out of the First World War with three quarters of a million dead. There was no appetite to fight Germany. He tried, I think, to play the cards as best he could. What do you think he made of Hitler at this point in time? Well, I, he, he didn't like Hitler at all. He, he thought he was a gangster and a psychopath. Um, I think that he, and I think that he had in mind that Hitler would not be someone who could be trusted. When he came back to the cabinet and briefed them on his first meeting with Hitler, he described him as the commonest little dog you ever saw which was cleaned up in the cabinet minutes to read, uh, as to Herr Hitler's appearance, there was nothing out of the common. Um, so he, he, he didn't like Hitler. I think it's fair to say that he may have overestimated his own personal rapport, his man-to-man -man rapport with Hitler. Hitler didn't like Chamberlain one bit and privately called him the old arsehole. He detested Chamberlain in some ways because he felt that Chamberlain had got the better of him. That's the great irony when one looks back at Munich, that the person who came out of the Munich Agreement most angry was Adolf Hitler, who believed that he'd been prevented from having a war on the perfect issue at a time of his choosing. And the man who'd frustrated him was Neville Chamberlain. 
Do you think that Chamberlain believed Hitler when he said to him in that final agreement that they signed when he went to his apartment that he didn't want war between Britain, France and Germany? Well, the thing about that piece of paper, which I hadn't realised actually until I started writing the book, is that the language in it, most of it was um, Hitler's own words that he'd uttered at the beginning of the week in a speech in Berlin where he'd said that uh, he thought that the Anglo-German naval agreement which he'd signed was going to be the start of a whole new relationship between Britain and Germany and that, um, you know, there was no appetite on the part of Germany for the for the British and German people ever to go to war with one another again. And Chamberlain actually had this set down and got him to sign it. That was what he did. It, it, so immediately, if you think of it in those terms, it's less credulous and rather more of a quite uh, shrewd tactic. Did he believe that Hitler would stick to his word? Nobody really knows. I think that he obviously hoped that he would and thought that it was quite likely that he would and thought that the best way of trying to ensure that he did indeed stick to it was, as he said, to make a big thing of it when I get back to London. That's what he said. He thought, I think, if he could wave the paper in public and read it out and say, this is what we've agreed, it would make it all the harder for Hitler to go back on it. Well, of course, Hitler was not a conventional politician. He did go back on it. He didn't care about that. But it did have the effect, and this Chamberlain certainly did think, that if he tore it up in public, um, it would show what he was like to the rest of the world and would unite the country and bring the Americans in. And to that extent, Chamberlain sacrificed his own reputation by making such a big thing of this agreement, which he had to do really, for it to uh, perform the function that he wanted. And do you think that this piece of paper did ultimately perform this function? I think that the piece of paper did do what Chamberlain hoped. I think that it convinced people uh, that uh, Hitler was not a man whose word could be trusted uh, and that therefore there was no option, however painful and difficult it might be, to fighting on and removing him from power, that there would never be any peace with a man who could so blatantly break his word. And so I think that he did fulfil the function. And also, of course, we did have the extra time to rearm. I mean, by 1939, Britain was spending 50% of all its government revenue on rearmament, a staggering uh, amount. I mean, the Spitfires didn't come from the clear air in 1940 conjured up by Winston Churchill, they'd come from the unheroic government of Neville Chamberlain. Um, do you think this extra time for rearmament, do you think that ultimately helped us in the war? And so, in a way, Chamberlain's actions had far-reaching effect? I think there's no doubt that we were incapable of fighting a war in 1938. It And it, we really weren't uh, ready until 1940. And even then, it was quite a close thing. So, uh, yes, I do think that. If we'd rearmed earlier, paradoxically, we would have had biplanes. We, you know, we wouldn't have had the most up-to-date modern fighters, the Hurricane and the Spitfire, which, you know, ultimately we were, we were to have. Of course, in the, in the extra period before the war broke out, Germany rearmed as well. And Germany, some experts think, actually produced more munitions and more um, weapon systems than we did. But we were at such a lower base. I mean, we, we only had about 20 operational Spitfires in the uh, summer of 1938. Um, we had 10 times more aircraft in 1940 than we had in 
1938. The Germans, uh, we, you know, we vol- the rearmament was more important to us, if you like, than it was to the Germans. Okay, so ultimately, this time was of more benefit to us than it was for Germany. Yes, I would say so. Thirty years ago, I did a documentary for the BBC about the Munich Agreement, and on paper, it looked as though France was in a position to defeat Germany or at least contain her. But as Alec Douglas Hume, who flew with um, Chamberlain to Munich, said. Um, Chamberlain thought that the French army was absolutely rotten, a conscript army which he thought would not be very effective, certainly not as effective as it had been in the First World War. And I think that Chamberlain was proved correct on that. Churchill thought that the French army was the great shield of Europe, as he called it, but I think that was a romantic view and and it was a mistake. Chamberlain had a much more realistic um, appreciation of the relative balance of power between the Germans and and, and the, the Allies. What sort of prime minister, in your words, was was Chamberlain? And how did you want to portray him in your novel? Well, you know, it doesn't seem to me that there's much originality to be gained from writing yet another novel about the glories of the summer of 1940, glorious though it was, and that um, it's more interesting to look at something more obscure and less heroic, and that is the Munich Agreement, and in particular to try and show that Hitler, uh, that Chamberlain was not the kind of weak, umbrella-wielding, wing-collared, feeble, elderly gentleman that he's been portrayed as ever since. He was, in fact, um, a very tough and commanding figure, dominant over his government, who reminds me rather of Margaret Thatcher in the way that he was a, through his mastery of detail and his sheer hard work and the force of his personality was able to dominate the government. Um, and it was appeasement was really driven by him. And, and in particular, the Munich Agreement would not have happened without Neville Chamberlain. It was he was relentless in his pursuit of peace, almost as relentless as Hitler was in his pursuit of war, which makes the duel between the two of them fascinating. Chamberlain was um, quite old, but he was tough and wiry, as he he said of himself. Uh, He was um, quite a cold figure, or shy perhaps would be better. He wasn't very clubbable. Uh, He was devoted to his wife and children. The people who worked for him, the private secretaries, all came to admire him. But he wasn't one given for uh, um, small talk or glad-handing. Uh, he was uh, a reserved figure, but he was formidable and he also was a great social reformer uh, and one of the fathers of the modern welfare state. And for none of this does he really get much credit. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, um, how did it feel bringing him to life in a, in a novel? It was fascinating to write about him. I had the feel to myself, really. I, I'm uh, listeners may know of a novel that has Neville Chamberlain in. I don't think I've ever read one. So I was able to um, portray him in private and, and have the feeling that I was doing something that was fresh. Uh, and what one sees is a man who actually was um, quite remorseless in his in the pursuit of the policy. He wasn't prepared to go behind the back of the cabinet Uh, overrule the Foreign Office, make these dramatic gestures, flying to Germany, a man in his 70s, in his 70th year, who who, no experience of flying, who um, 
nevertheless was prepared to board a plane and actually confront Hitler in Germany, this this demonic figure. Uh, and indeed, at one point, proposed to take off without even telling Hitler he was coming so that Hitler couldn't turn him back. He, he gambled. Uh, he was... Uh, Almost messianic in his belief uh, of him, in himself as on on a mission to preserve peace, so one has to sort of rethink him a bit, I think, and I, that's what I try to do in the book. And of course, in the book, we're not getting the story through the perspective of Chamberlain; we're getting it through the perspective of a fictional character. So that leads me on to another question. Um, about the story, we get we get your story through these two different narrators who are fictional, um, but one is German and the other's English. Um, wh- what was sort of the reason for that? Why did you want to have sort of both sides of the coin? Well, I a long time ago, really about thirty years ago, I thought it, I had the idea of writing a novel in which um, one of Chamberlain's private secretaries who went on the plane with him would be the central figure, uh, a man who was facing in his private life in an unhappy marriage. Uh, a question of whether he should continue to appease uh, the fact that his wife was having affairs or make a stand against it. And I like the idea of playing off the grand national, international politics against this intensely personal drama. Uh, But that was only one half of the story. And it wasn't until last year, really, that I suddenly thought of this German character. And then I thought if there were two young men, 27, 28 years old, They'd been at Oxford together in 1930, 31. Uh, uh, One went into the British Foreign Office, one went into the German Foreign Ministry. The German, uh, patriotic but opposed to Hitler. Uh, And the idea that their paths might cross again in Munich during the course of this dramatic conference, one travelling with Chamberlain on the plane, the other travelling with Hitler on his train from Berlin overnight to Munich, that I would have then a, a dramatic structure and the the book immediately began to come to life in my mind, uh, and I could it seemed to me a way of having both uh, an intensely uh, personal story about two imaginary and relatively minor figures played out in the shadow of the of this huge event with these real life figures of of Hitler and Chamberlain. And I also believe that whilst researching the book, you went to an, a number of historical places. Um, so where did you go, and what was it like? Well, I, I'm a novelist who really revels in the geography of of the books. You know, the geography so, tells you so much about personality, interrelations between characters, just the way things develop. Uh, and I, I really saw the great locations that I needed. In Downing Street, I, I, was, I was kindly admitted after hours and allowed to wander around quite freely. And I went to Neville Chamberlain's study and to the cabinet room and to the private secretary's rooms where my hero, uh, one of them, uh, worked, and to Horace Wilson's office off the cabinet room. He was Chamberlain's eminence grise, as they called him, and to Chamberlain, the prime minister's room in the House of Commons. And then in Germany, even more uh, remarkably, uh, the uh, Führerbau, as it was called, uh, the sort of cultural heart of uh, Hitler's Munich, which he himself had built and had been finished the previous year, that was where uh, the conference took place and is remarkably unchanged. And I I wandered around that um, from top to bottom and saw Hitler's study where most of the, the deliberations took place. 
And then finally, perhaps the most remarkable of all, I got to into Hitler's apartment, which was where Chamberlain went the day after the Munich conference to get Hitler's signature on the piece of paper. And that really is remarkably untouched. It's been Hitler's estate after his death passed to the state of Bavaria. Uh, the building became used as a police headquarters. Uh, and although all, obviously Hitler's furniture and paintings and personal objects have been removed, nevertheless, the, the flooring and the, uh, you know, the, the, the bookshelves and that sort of thing remains un, untouched. So I was able to sit in the very spot where Hitler and Chamberlain talked and see Hitler's bedroom and the bath, communal bathroom he shared with his niece, uh, who shot herself in that room, uh, Gailey Raubel, in 1931. And, you know, having seen that, for instance, in the ge geography of the, of the apartment, it left me in little doubt that Hitler had indeed had an incestuous affair with his niece. Because you, you've touched on that in the book. You mentioned in, about his niece and there was a shrine in the, in the apartment to her. So that, that was there, was it, in the apartment? Oh, yes, absolutely. And Hitler used this apartment um, whenever he was in Munich. If he wasn't staying out of town in Berchtesgaden on the mountain, he would be in this apartment in Munich. And during the, he used, that's where he lived during the Munich conference. He had uh, Mussolini to lunch there on the day of the conference itself and that he and stayed the night there and then the next morning this is where Chamberlain went to see him and I don't think any other novelist has ever been in there it's quite difficult to get into it um, they don't normally let people in but I managed to get in as an old journalist um, I find, <laughs> uh, blagged my way in and uh, to just stand there and to see it all was really eerie and one had a sense of ghosts creeping around and there were virtually no one has ever described it before as it was when when Chamberlain met Hitler there we Alec Douglas Hume was a very clipped and laconic figure he never went into detail and the only other eyewitness there was the interpreter Schmidt who concentrated on what was said rather than the place itself so in the novel, I was able to... It's pretty well the climax of the novel is the meeting be, between the two men in this apartment. And to go there made it possible for me to really visualise it and sense what it must have been like. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Hitler. Um, So... We all know that Hitler was a master of propaganda. Um, How did he use propaganda, in your opinion, to reach his aim of annexing uh, the Sudetenland? How did he get them to accept it? Munich and the whole Czech crisis was really rather a propaganda disaster for Hitler. It was probably his first great setback. Um, He made a mistake, in my view, he announced to his generals at the beginning of the summer that it was his unalterable will to wipe Czechoslovakia from the map. He didn't say, it's my unalterable will to get the Sudetenland back. It was his unalterable will to conquer Czechoslovakia, to wipe it out. Uh, And he believed that either the British and French wouldn't fight over it, or if they declared war, they wouldn't be able to intervene in any practical way. Um, And uh, he... uh, But when Chamberlain offered to fly to uh, see him to uh, try and sort it out. I think Hitler was very flattered by this approach and agreed to see him. And Chamberlain went and saw him and said, in effect, what are your grievances? What is the problem? And and Hitler spewed out all these um, objections to the way the German minority were being treated and it was monstrous and they must come back into Germany and so on. And Chamberlain said, okay, let me see what I can do. And uh, I think at that point, or very soon afterwards, Hitler realized he'd made a mistake because these were demands which could be satisfied. If the British and the French put pressure on the Czech government, uh, he would get the Sudetenland. And although he and he wriggled and squirmed uh, on this hook of his own making for about two weeks afterwards, and really it boiled down to whether he was going to go in by force and take these lands on the 1st of October, or have them evacuated in an orderly fashion by the 10th. And even those members of his entourage who favoured war, uh, such as Goebbels, Goebbels said you can't fight a war over modalities. You can't fight a war over technical issues like that. It would look ridiculous. So with gritted teeth, really, Hitler was obliged to make this agreement. And he resented it. He tried to whip up enthusiasm for a war against Czechoslovakia. He had a big military parade through uh, Berlin, and nobody turned out to watch it. And that was a fiasco. And then when he arrived in Munich, to his horror, he found that Chamberlain was getting bigger cheers from the crowds in Munich than he was himself. Uh, And this is one of the reasons why he detested Chamberlain. And years later, he was still complaining that Munich had been a disaster. And a couple of months before he died, he said, we should have gone to war in 1938. September 1938 was the perfect time. But he was, he was cheated out of it. And uh, he made, didn't make the same mistake the next year when he was making threats over Poland. He was never specific. His demands could never be met. He was, he was bent on war. But 
oddly enough, um, Czechoslovakia was was almost his first great error as a political leader. What do you think he learnt from what happened in Munich, taking that forth to the future? The first thing you have to remember about the about the Munich Agreement is that it wasn't that Hitler was bluffing and the cowardly British and French gave in and that gave him an appetite to try it again in 1939, which is to some extent the myth that, that's been handed down to us. Hitler was determined and wanted a war in 1938 and was cheated out of it. Uh, he still wanted a war the following year, and this time he was careful to be non-specific about his demands. I think he, he, he didn't know whether the British and the French would fight over Poland or not. And in a way, as with Munich, he didn't, uh, Czechoslovakia, he didn't really care. I mean, he knew that war was coming, and he knew that probably the sooner he had the war, the more chance he had of winning it. He knew that by by the early 1940s that the the French and the British and the Russians would be too strong for for him. Uh, His best hope lay in an an early war. And he never made the mistake that he made in 1938 by by laying out demands which, which could be met. In your book, we're introduced to Hartmann, who's part of a resistance movement working against Hitler. Um, now, Hartmann's um, fictional, but there was a very real resistance movement working against him at this time. Um, is there anything you can tell us about this group of people? Well, in the beginning of the summer of 1938, when Hitler started issuing his orders, for, that he, saying that he wished to have a, a military plan to attack and wipe out Czechoslovakia, uh, panicking um, German German officials, particularly in the foreign ministry, did make contact with the government in London and warned them of what Hitler was talking about in private. But the extent to which this was a, a, a anything more than tipping off the enemy and saying stand firm is unclear and I think has been generally uh, exaggerated. They said, the emissaries from the German opposition said to the British, well, if you declare war with the French on Hitler, the German army will move against Hitler uh, because they feel that they would lose that war. They will arrest him, shoot him, put him on trial. All you need to do is to declare war and leave the rest to us. Well, if you were sitting in Chamberlain's position, you can hardly, on the gam- on the word of a three or four Uh, officials from Berlin commit the whole British Empire, as he put it, to war on the hunch that possibly, maybe, the German army might move against Hitler. And I have in my novel, my central figure, German figure, is part of this resistance and does indeed, you know, go armed into the Chancellery in the hope that something is going to happen. But I don't think it was ever realistically going to happen. I think it was exaggerated after the war when the Germans were fearing the Nuremberg trials and they were trying to suggest that it had all been part of a great opposition to Hitler. And the really the clinching proof is the only man who could have issued the orders to the German army to arrest Hitler, Walter von Brauchitz, who was the commander-in-chief of the German army at that time. In 1947, he was in a prisoner of war camp in Bridgend in Wales and was approached by a man called Otto John, who was also a prisoner there, who said to him, what is this story uh, that there was a the German army plot to arrest Hitler? And Brauschitz really tore him off a strip and said, do you really seriously think that I was going to move against the most popular man in the country? Tell me why, he demanded. And 
Rauschitz, who died the following year, it's very hard to see why he would have lied at that point. And it seems to me much more plausible that the German army, as long as Hitler was being successful, were content to um, put up with him. They had, after all, signed a, or sworn an oath uh, to be loyal to him. And it wasn't until six years later when Germany really was facing obvious imminent defeat in July 1944 that there was ever any serious movement by the officer corps against Hitler. What do you think that normal people thought about Hitler at this at this point in time, around the time of the Munich Agreement? I think ordinary German people, um, by and large, supported Hitler. Um, and I think that a lot of them actually absolutely worshipped Hitler, who'd had a, this great run of success, who'd restored national morale. Uh, the economy was booming with rearmament. Um, and he, made, he, made, he was making the Germans feel good about themselves. Uh, and this, the only, the first cloud on this, I think, was the Czechoslovak crisis, because Germany had suffered even more than the British and the French in the First World War in terms of casualties. Uh, they really did not want another war. And uh, I think they made it clear to Hitler, both by their indifference to the show of military might uh, that, went, that passed through Berlin on the uh, 27th of September 1938, and uh, in Munich, uh, when Chamberlain arrived in the way that they turned out and, and cheered Chamberlain, stood seven, ten deep outside his hotel and cheered him whenever he appeared. I think that they demonstrated to Hitler that whilst they approved of his policies in general, they did not want to go to war. And this um, was a crisis, I think, for Hitler. He said, how can one make a war with such a people? So the, the relationship to that to that extent is slightly more ambivalent over this issue. Uh, but generally, I think there's no doubt that he was an immensely popular figure. What was it like as a writer bringing Hitler to life as a character in your book? That was uh, the worst thing or the most challenging thing about writing the book was the knowledge, the creeping knowledge from the start that I would have to have Hitler in it because I have written about uh, the Third Reich before in... Uh, Fatherland, my first novel, 25 years ago, in which Hitler is never appears and is simply a, a, this looming offstage presence. And really, that's the best way to treat him. But given that I wanted to write this sort of almost documentarily realistic novel about the Munich Agreement, I had to have him in it. And uh, the first time I tried to put him in the novel uh, and had, had my character Hartmann go into the Reich Chancellery where Hitler was present, it was so awful having this man on the same page that I actually rang my editor and said, I'm going to have to abandon the book. In the end, I, I chickened out of that scene and simply had the, the door close in my hero's face uh, so he doesn't see him. And then he glimpses Hitler on a railway platform on the train heading south to Munich. And then finally, I wrote a scene in which he unexpectedly finds himself alone with Hitler um, and and somehow once I'd done that, um, I was fine. Uh, I felt that I got through it. We never at any stage go inside Hitler's head into his consciousness, nor do we do that with Chamberlain. Uh, we we stay outside, and I I I think that it works. Although obviously that's not for me to judge, but it's not an easy thing to put Hitler into a novel. He's a sort of radioactive figure who. Uh, uh, everyone has such strong conceptions of him that it's almost impossible to put him on the page. 
he remains a completely mysterious figure he was at the time. He very rarely said to anyone what was in his head. His deeper, most innermost thoughts were always, he kept them to himself. And there was always a distance between Hitler and the rest of the world. Nobody ever really, he, he didn't allow anyone to get close to him. Did you find him harder to include than, than, for example, Chamberlain, who was, you said that you came up against a few stumbling blocks about putting Hitler into the novel, um, but you didn't seem to have that with Chamberlain. I'm just wondering what the difference was, because they were both real people. Well, with Chamberlain, I felt that I was into new territory, that that uh, I was exploring a character that was, would be completely fresh to the reader. They wouldn't know that Chamberlain puffed away on cigars in private. Uh, they wouldn't really expect to see this rather dynamic figure um, driving events. Uh, I knew that there, I would at least have uh, the flavour of originality when Chamberlain comes into a room, whereas with Hitler, of course, one can't get away from the newsreels or the other portrayals of him on screen. Uh, and, you know, there's he's so menacing, he's almost comic. And, and there's nothing worse than to break the spell of a novel by putting in a character um, that everyone starts to almost snigger, you know, when he appears. And that was what I really had to guard against. I had no problem um, with Chamberlain in that regard. I was going to talk about some of the contemporary resonance that you can take from the novel. So I think we'll maybe start with the appeasement, maybe. So the Munich Agreement is sort of a byword for the futility of appeasing expansionist states. Do you think that appeasement is futile? No, I don't, as a matter of fact. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because appeasement and Munich are thrown around so lightly. First of all, you know, to compare what faced Chamberlain to what faced Mrs. Thatcher with General Galtieri or Tony Blair with Saddam Hussein or David Cameron with Gaddafi is just a joke. I mean, Hitler was had command of an enormously powerful, mechanised, industrialised country within two hours' flying time of Britain, which had the most powerful air force in the world. Uh, you know, this wasn't some sort of tin pot person who in the end could be beaten. He was, he, it was like dealing with China or Russia. It was a big thing and nobody... Uh, um, you know, Nixon or, uh, you know, with detente. None of these people thought that it would be a wise idea uh, to go to war with these countries. So um, I, I worry that we cheapen appeasement when we use it so uh, glibly. Secondly, appeasement really is, in essence, um, goodwill and common sense. I mean, there were grievances left behind by Munich, which well-meaning uh, people in Britain and France thought that if they could be addressed, it might be possible to avoid another catastrophic war. Czechoslovakia being one of them, three and a half million German people against their will, or overwhelmingly, were consigned to a country in which they did not wish to be. This violated the principles of the self-determination of peoples, which was one of the points, the Wilsonian point after the First World War. So Hitler had a case uh, with the Sudetenland. Uh, now, as I've said, we know that really he just wanted to invade Czechoslovakia and start a general war. But taking him at his word, trying to do the best you could to avoid war, which uh, we were not equipped to fight in any case, it seems to me appeasement was pretty well the only policy that could be followed. 
I was trying to think the other day of what the modern equivalent would be of appeasement to just try and bring home what it really was. And it struck me that actually the Good Friday Agreement and the Northern Ireland peace process was, in a sense, a process of appeasement. There were violent men who committed grievous crimes, atrocities, uh, against civilians. Uh, and, of course, by talking to them, the British government uh, could be charged with uh, hypocrisy, uh, sucking up to evil and criminals, um, and uh, but does that do any of us think that it wasn't uh, a good idea to try this? I, I think not. If uh, and the appeasement of the IRA, if you want to call that it that, and of Irish Republicans had failed, uh, then Chamberlain and and Tony Blair might have been spoken of in the same breath. But it didn't fail. In that case, it worked. But I don't think anyone thinks the less of Tony Blair and John Major for trying it. Um, and that seems to me a fairer way to try and sort of think oneself into the position of Neville Chamberlain in 1938. I think we're seeing at the moment this rise in the far right um, around the world, in the US, in Germany recently. And what's your sort of take on this at the moment? It seems like an apt time for your book to come out. Well, I think there are um, there is a sense of the 1930s revisited at the moment uh, of nationalistic forces, extreme forces, starting to move into the centre of politics in a way that they haven't um, since the end of the Second World War. Um, when I finished the book, one turned on the television and saw American citizens parading through an American town with swastikas. Worse still than that, one heard an American president being quite equivocal in his, in his condemnation of it. Um, we've seen uh, the uh, SPD, the Social Democrats in Germany, get their lowest share of the vote since 1933. Uh, that sounds ominous, just simply to say that. So certainly there are things that are on the move today, which we haven't really seen in play uh, in the West since the 1930s. Uh, let's get things in proportion here. Uh, first of all, there hasn't been the rioting in the streets, the, the violence, the bloodshed, the economic collapse, uh, the overhang of, a, of unfinished business in a war, which contributed to the, to the, to the crisis in the 1930s. Um, but, you know, history doesn't repeat itself in easy, simple ways. Uh, and the underlying forces uh, are definitely there again, I think. And We've had a 70-odd years of, of relative peace and prosperity and stability. And often that leads, in the end, to a kind of um, boredom, almost, with the status quo and a, a desire to kick over the traces. Um, the, the discipline of fear, which was exercised on our grandparents and parents' generation by the lessons of the 30s and the Second World War, that discipline is gone we no longer we no longer worry in quite the same way, and I think that we're quite sort of glib in the way that we are prepared to just leap into the dark into whole new arrangements without any certainty uh, as to where they're going to lead us. That was Robert Harris. Munich is out now in the UK, published by Hutchinson. In the US, it will be published in January by Deckel Edge. And you can read a review of the book in our October issue, which is still on sale for a few more days. 
Also in this month's edition, you'll find articles on the Knights Templar, Edward VIII's wartime service, Indians in Victorian Britain, and a whole lot more. Look out for our October issue now in all good news agents and our many digital formats. Okay, well that's about all for today, but please do come back on Thursday when we'll be talking to Chris Skidmore about his new biography of Richard III. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.